ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Seattle Hour. I have another great guest today. Um, we've had him on the show before. He is the author of the book, Becoming an Entrepreneur. Um, he is the host of the Voluntary Life podcast. If you guys haven't checked out that podcast yet, you really do need to subscribe and listen to it. Not only does he have great interviews with people that have uh, that are working towards a goal to get financial freedom, but also just like some, he also goes over uh, some books and uh, different concepts and and uh, really just just really great wisdom and information just just for you to help yourself uh, gain financial freedom and just be more. Um, I'm just trying to. I, I had this great intro going there, Jake DeSillis. Uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds great, yeah. I appreciate that, Drew. <laughs> but, uh, Jake DeSillis. How are you doing today, sir? I'm very well, Drew. I'm doing good, thanks. Yeah, I'm here in Brighton in the UK at the moment, uh, nice. looking out over a beautiful sunny day and uh, yeah, feeling good. How are you? I'm doing well. I didn't realize you were in Brighton. I have uh, a bunch of family in Crawley. So, All right. Uh, yeah, so I remember when I went to England, I, I hung out at the pier in Brighton. Yeah, yeah. This is like the 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 southernmost that it gets in Britain, which doesn't say much. It's still pretty cold, but it's nice. And it's on the sea, and I'm a big fan of the sea. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm originally from London, and and it's uh, it's pretty close to London, but it's actually on on the sea. So it's known as a sort of more chilled out version of uh, of London on sea. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Was a, it was cool when I went down there? I went down to there in uh, what was uh, and also. Uh, um, well, I took a ferry out of uh, uh, Dover, and then yes. uh, my my cousin had she had bought a place. It was another coastal town. I think it was actually uh, west of you, but I can't remember, Jake. That was it was over ten years ago, and I went yes, there. Sure, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I wanted to have you back on the show, and I know last time we we let the listeners listen to. Um, you really took us through, you know, what you did when you were when you were building your business and became. And then eventually sold it. And uh, so something I kind of wanted to talk about now is, you know, just listening to your podcast, you know, we, we talk, you've talked a lot about minimalism and, and you know, and, you, and your approach to freedom is a lot different than a lot of people that are kind of uh, discussing freedom or talking about that. And, and, you know, and you talk about more than just, you know, the government, which obviously that's, that's one thing, but you, t you talk about things that we can actually control which I really mm. like. And, and a lot of times uh, um, you've had some great podcasts about minimalism. And I guess something I would like to say is, you know, because I know like right now you you travel, you live in between England and, and Mexico um, and you travel quite a bit. So um, what, it, uh, what process did it take you to kind of like free yourself from your stuff? <laughs> well, it was very much uh, the process of traveling that that um, brought my mind to it. Um, the experience of going abroad and putting all of my stuff in storage and realizing, you know, just how much stuff I had, um, and how I, just the hassle of having to box it all up because you know we have a, a, an apartment here in Brighton, and when we started traveling, my wife and I we we put everything into storage so that we could rent out the apartment, and. I realized that you know I just had stuff in in cupboards and uh, wardrobes that I hadn't used for ages, and I also realized that going abroad, you know, I was living out of a rucksack for seven and a half months and and didn't miss any of that stuff either, and so that that was a really instructive experience for me because I realized that 
you know, it's it's kind of an a, it's it's there's a comfort feeling that people have being surrounded by their stuff. You know, when you're in your apartment and you've got all your stuff and it's all around you, and you kind of feel that there's a certain comfort that we I think because of the way that we think about possessions. And when I realized that actually I could also go without any of that stuff except my laptop, you know, phone and a few items of clothing, I could go without everything else for seven and a half months, and I didn't miss any of it. Um, it just got me thinking about how much stress and hassle is involved in the ownership of stuff because you've got to put all of that stress and hassle into earning the money to buy the possessions in the first place. And then you have to store the possessions and you have to you know, uh, maintain them and, and uh, look after them and so forth. And, and it really made me uh, question what my own attitude towards uh, my stuff was and, and whether or not I was, I was getting fulfillment and, and real freedom from having that stuff. Because, I mean, especially because you, you ha I came from a background where, uh, you know, my parents were split up, but the, the part of my, my childhood was definitely not, not rich. I lived in a, a, a communal squat uh, with, on my mother's side, and my father lived in a much nicer place. But, you know, I, I definitely experienced uh, some material uh, hardship in my childhood. And so, you know, when I started to earn good money, it felt great to be able to buy stuff. And that yeah. felt like a, a certain amount of freedom that came with that. But there's a flip side too, which is that I think it can actually, you know, if you let it, uh, if you let it, it can actually take away your freedom because it takes away your opportunities to have the best kind of freedom, which is the ability to do what you want with your time and enjoy your life in the way that you want to. So that was kind of how I came to a, a bit of a reassessment about my relationship to stuff. Yeah, it's interesting to uh, to think about it. I know personally, I've been. I've been trying to get rid of stuff and it's like, it's always a process, but every time I do get rid of stuff, it's like this freeing experience. Now, when you first started getting rid of it, did you sell it or did you donate it? Like what, what do you recommend for, for people? Like, cause I know there are some options now. I know like, uh, there is like this share economy business that's coming out of the Netherlands that you can, you can put your stuff out there for people to rent from you. Um, mm. kind of like Airbnb. So that if you have something that's like some tools or, I don't. I don't even know. I, I'm not. It's going to be interesting to see how it how it goes because I know I've personally used Airbnb and Uber and I've I've really enjoyed the experience. But um, you know, it, it just different ideas. I mean, I I think if you can have your stuff and have it earn money for you, that's one thing. But if it's just sitting there idly, it's probably. Do you think it's better just to probably donate it or give it to somebody that you know that 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 could use it? Well, I would say the best place to start is definitely to see what you can sell. Because, I mean, this is one of the un unexpected benefits is that when you re start, well, at least my, when I started going minimalist, I, I looked at all of my stuff and, and just looked at what I could get rid of on eBay or Amazon um, and or, or obviously other sites too. But those are the main ones for me, eBay and Amazon, things that I could uh, easily resell. And what you realize is that, you know, you have a lot of value uh, sitting in stuff that you don't use that you can actually uh, get back and that can go towards giving you greater financial freedom. So just random stuff, you know, I talked about this actually on one of my podcasts, but I had uh, many, many years ago, I went to Australia and I bought this hat when I was in the outback in Australia and in the, in the desert, I bought this kind of cowboy hat and this thing, you know, as you can imagine, I didn't get a lot of chance to use that in, in, in England, right? Yeah. So this thing had been sitting in the top of my wardrobe for years and years um, as a kind of, uh, you know, a memento of a trip that I did years and years ago. 
And I just never got rid of it. And I, I put that on, uh, uh, I think it was on eBay, and I, got, I think I got 50 pounds for that. And, That's pretty you know, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you just realized, wow, that there was actually, there were people out there who value that item, who, who have obviously have some use for it. And, uh, you know, so that I think is, especially if you, if you're working towards financial freedom, that's a great thing to do to start off with is just see what you can sell and get rid of all the things that are, um, easy to sell first, because that gives you a certain amount of momentum and you can start, you know, uh, actually seeing some benefits and, and, uh, it's like a little win each time you do, because not only are you reducing the amount of stuff that you have to maintain, but you're improving your financial circumstances too. And, you know, you're getting rid of stuff. So there's no longer the storage and, and all of that. And that was very easy for me to do as well with things like books. You know, they're, they're, I, I had just tons and tons of books that I had read, but that I really liked and appreciated. And so I wanted to keep them in case I wanted to read them again in future. And I, just, I realized that this is actually a really inefficient way of reminding myself that I've read a book is to have it sitting on a, a shelf in, in, my, in my apartment. So, you know, I, I, I just ha- now I've, I've made a list of the books that I've read and I've just got rid of them all. Um, and <laughs> yes, so, so, you know, something cool that I heard you talk about in your podcast too was you had some of them turned into ebooks. Like, mm. didn't, you, didn't you do that or you turned them yeah. into ebooks? Yeah, absolutely. So what I've done is all, all the books that I uh, have read, I just sold those. Uh, but there were books that I had bought in the past that I kept meaning to read and I just hadn't got to it yet. And in a way, me buying those books was like a reminder to myself that, oh, this looks good. I want to read it at some point, but I just hadn't got to it. So what I've done is I've because I've gone paperless and uh, as part of our traveling, I've just got rid of everything, uh, scanned everything that was paper. That included um, some books that I wanted to read. And if those books were available in ebook, then that's fairly easy. You can just get a hold of an ebook copy if you need to. But some of the books that I had was sort of like really old books, um, economics books and stuff that's not that easy to get hold of. Uh, and if there aren't ebook versions around, what I did was um, I just scanned them. And that proved to be actually really easy to do. I took, I took a big pile of books down to um, my local copy shop, and they have one of those paper guillotines. And I got them just to slice the spine off the books. And they did that for pennies, you know, I mean, it didn't cost, yeah. it cost me virtually nothing to do. So then I came back and I, I, I just, uh, I have a top loading scanner. So I just literally stuck all the books through the scanner. And now I get, I mean, the, the great thing is I get to listen to these books while I'm doing other stuff because they're now, because they're digital, I, I have an app on my phone that, that will play um, a text file. So now not only do I get to keep those books while we travel around the world, but they're actually more useful to me because I can search them and I can listen to them. And that means that while I'm, uh, you know, clearing up or, or doing exercise or whatever, I can be actually listening to a book. And so, yeah, going paperless is another aspect for me of just having less crap to take care of and, and, and look after. I used to have files and files of paper notes and uh, that's all gone. And it just, it's just really freeing because it means that not only is it easier for us to travel and go anywhere because we don't, I don't have all of this paper to store somewhere, but also uh, it, it kind of means that I don't have these random boxes of stuff that I'm not even sure what they were. I've just kind of got rid of all that stuff, you know? Absolutely. So how do you store your data? Like I know you moved a lot of stuff over to digital. Do you have some cloud software along with a hard, um, like put it on a hard disk as well? Yeah, I mean, I I'm a big fan of using uh, sort of specific databases for 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 different things. 
So, for example, I have a, uh, an application called uh, uh, Caliber, or sometimes people pronounce Caliber it Caliber. Caliber is great. Ka- yeah. yeah. And I use that for my uh, e- ebook library. And uh, and I also, I mean, it depends on how sensitive the data is, because obviously with cloud storage, you have to be really careful about what, what you're putting in the cloud and so forth. So I like Evernote as a general place for stuff that I really don't care if anybody were to ever see that because it's just, you know, I, there's a lot of paper files. Let's say things like um, man, user manuals and that kind of stuff. I mean, this is not really sensitive information. So that can all go into something like Evernote for me, uh, which is nice and easy because it's a... Um, because it's it's a cloud storage solution, and you can get it on your phone and everything else. And otherwise, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, of encryption in the cloud as well. And there are various services that you can use that um, allow you to use, for example, Dropbox, but use it with encryption. So I use an app called Boxcryptor, which um, allows me to store uh, files in Dropbox, but they are encrypted at the, on the Dropbox side. And on my side, I, I get to see them as unencrypted. So basically, it, it means that it's uh, just more secure. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge. Uh, I've been trying to transition to ebooks. I have a bunch of books, and typically, what I'll do is I'll just give my books away to somebody that like a friend, and if if I have an e copy of it, um, mm. the only ones I've held on to are ones that like I actually have like uh, the the author has signed. Um, but I'll probably eventually sell those. Um, yeah. It's it's like it's interesting. Just like uh, I've been really into. I mean, just the the whole minimalism thing is really freeing. My friend, uh, one of my friends, just recently in uh, Toronto, sold his house and just he had this huge house and he sold it and then he sold most of his stuff and gave a lot of his stuff away. And now he's living in this like really kind of uh, minimalist apartment. That's really uh, it's really cool the way it's designed. And then also, uh, you know, just thinking about. the tiny house movement. I mean, there's, there's so many people that are, you know, freeing themselves because, you know, one thing, uh, that, you know, one of our biggest expenses is our housing. And if you can, Mm. if you can get that out of the way, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you free up a lot of your income or even just capital. So if you want to invest your money or use that money to try to make more money, you can, instead of just having it as a bill, um, so what what are your thoughts about the the tiny house movement? I mean, I know I know you're a min, you, you know you're really a big fan of minimalism, and is and have you seen it kind of taken on? I know I've seen it here in the states, and I've seen some parts outside of the states, but have you seen it anywhere in the UK or anything like that? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's still a relatively small uh, fringe movement um, in the UK. I mean, it still is kind of in the States too, but yeah. I'm, I think it's awesome. I mean, I'm at, we're actually in the process of selling uh, our apartment in the UK and, and just going to, we're going to become uh, perpetual travelers. So we'll be, we'll be renting um, around the world and, and living, you know, very much uh, in, in more sort of, uh, well, nicer places than warmer places, <laughs> basically. Um, but that, it'll mean also that uh, the cost of our housing uh, will go down significantly because we won't be here in the UK anymore. Um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the tiny house movement because I'm also a big fan of uh, being skeptical and critical of the home ownership uh, myth. Yeah, you know, the home, the the whole idea of home ownership. I mean, the interesting thing is that home ownership has been something that has been so massively uh, incentivized by the tax system, by government policy, by the way that uh, uh, governments have treated uh, the building industry, and uh, you know everything is push pushes people 
towards taking out large mortgages and buying big homes. And the whole, you know, myth, the idea is that, you know, renting is throwing money down the drain and that eventual home ownership is is a great way of uh, of saving money because it kind of forces you to save, but also because there are tax advantages from doing so. And so consequently, what people do is they buy as much house as they possibly can afford. You know, they buy off this huge housing bill early on in their careers. And that, all that does is it, it chains people with this enormous debt yeah. that they then have to work their asses off to to pay down. And eventually the cost of that house, when you take into account the interest payments on that debt, is huge. And when you when you think about it too, people are living in housing that is way beyond what they really, uh, what gives them fulfillment. In my experience, you know, a lot of people are spending a lot more on housing than they they need to, uh, to, to, to live a happy life. Because I mean, there's nothing, you can obviously, you can spend your money on whatever you like, whatever makes you happy. But it, you know, I noticed, and this is maybe because I, I lived in a studio apartment until I was 38, you know, and until I then moved into this, this apartment now with my, my wife. But, uh, I'm, I'm very used to living in pretty small and, uh, uh, pretty sort of, uh, standard, uh, housing. But I, I noticed that this, because it's kind of Linked to this idea of of uh, saving and this idea of it being a, a smart financial move to own a home, uh, I think actually a lot of people get themselves into uh, terrible financial trouble because they take on way more uh, house than they need to, and that actually becomes their entire financial life for twenty to 40 years is this house that they have to pay down. It's like an elephant in the room. Any other financial moves that you want to make have to kind of fit around this enormous decision to buy a house. And of course, as we saw, you know, it was all based on the myth that house prices can only go up. And, you know, that got blown out of the water in 2008. Um, Well, I think it's about to get blown out of the water again. I mean, we're definitely in an echo bubble and there's a housing bubble in pretty much every country. I mean, Canada has one. We have an echo bubble. Uh, China has huge real estate bubble. And it's it's interesting to see, you know, you know, something else you were you were saying about, uh, um, you know, this this idea of buying a house. You know, one thing I did, um, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was, uh, I think, like 22. And mm. something he put in my head was that, you know, your house is a liability. Yeah. And, and and that's and that's it. Now, again, now if you want to put your house on Airbnb and you want to rent it out and you can have that bill pay for itself, that's one thing, but most people don't do that. Most people don't uh look at their house as, okay, I have this how many square footage. I, I was talking to one of my friends, uh Charles Hugh Smith, and he was saying, you know, the real value of your home is if you if you think about how much could you rent out each room for. And, mm. and like monthly total and then like just think about adding that up that's how you could really figure out the true value of your home not the not the because housing is so it's just it's the estimate of your home is it's never worth as much as, it, as they tell you that it is um, yeah and, uh, and it's unfortunately it's really hard to work out what it is worth because it's so illiquid yeah. you know if you buy stocks or gold or something you can sell that in within a day 
and you know exactly how much you're going to get for it. Whereas if you have a house, it's going to take you maybe six months to sell and you know think the deal can fall through and then you have this a chain and all of this stuff goes on. It's very hard to actually know exactly how much it's worth. And you're right, the ultimate value is based on what the rental income is that you can get from the house. But the housing market's so, so massively uh, skewed by all the government intervention into it that 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 it is not at all clear what the price is that you're going to achieve. Yeah, it's, I mean, so what do you think? Like, I know, I know personally, when when this next bubble bursts, um, I th- I think I'd like to own some rental property, but and like probably get like a management company to run it. Like, what do you? I, I know personally, you're a big fan of the permanent portfolio. Like, do you mm. like for in in like for like personally, have you ever thought about like? owning property as like an investment option or i mean i know that you you really stick to the permanent portfolio so just to pick your brain kind of about yeah. that well i mean you know it, property is the oldest and most well-known route to passive income and long before people started building websites and and thinking about getting passive income online property's been a very well-known way to start uh, an entrepreneurial venture that's going to give you some passive income, and, and loads of people have, you know, bought up fixer, bought fixer uppers, done them up, rented them out, and got themselves passive income, and used that income to buy another property and so forth. And I think that's great, but I would say that is a business. You know, as far as I'm yeah. concerned, if you want to do, if you want to get into the real estate market, then you have to be interested in becoming knowledgeable about real estate and treat it as a job. Treat it as this is a business that you're going to go into, you're going to compete with all of the other people who want to do this, and there are lots of them. And you're going to need to be able to understand what the market is like, what the rental market is like, what people will pay rent for, what they won't pay rent for, whether or not this district is up and coming or going to go down, and what happens when that new transit line goes in, will that change the values, and so on and so forth. And you have to understand all the issues to do with the legal contracts and, and uh, insurance and, and so and that's all really cool I think if someone wants to do that great and and it is a very well-known route to passive income but I, the way that I think about it though is that you have to be willing to to know that that isn't just going to happen automatically and you're not just going to get passive income coming in you've got to really work for it and sweat for it and treat it as a business and just personally I've never been that interested in real estate to gain the kind of uh, market knowledge yeah. that would make me a good uh, property owner. You know, I, I, yeah. I'm sure that anyone can become a good landlord that makes good money, but they need to be an intelligent landlord and they need to know what their property is worth and know how to do deals and know how to keep good tenants and get rid of bad ones and so on and so forth. And for me, that that's the real issue is that, it's often considered to be something that's just it's such an easy business because once you get rent coming in, rent's just coming in. And I don't think it is. I think it's actually, there's a lot of skill involved and there's a lot of detail that can trip you up. Um, and so that's why I haven't considered it. Not because I think it's a bad business, but just because I don't want to be in the property market as also, a, an active player. It also ties you down. I mean, you like to travel. So, I mean, you can't, you could have management, but sometimes you're probably going to have to be there. And if you're in Mexico or you're in Spain and they're like, oh, we need you back here. I mean, that <laughs> puts a burden on your trip for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, so I mean, so what, uh, so just kind of, I, I I think we went over it a little bit and I still got to read Harry Brown's book because the permanent portfolio, um, definitely for me personally, I think it's, it's something that I definitely need to have as a, 
as a stream of income now. Um, like in a lot of people say, you know, having multiple streams of income is important. Like, uh, have you, so how does, so can you give you like kind of a concept of the permanent portfolio again, just for, just for yeah, my audience? Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, here's one thing I would think about the way to think about how to compare the permanent portfolio with some of the other things that we're talking about, right? When you, if you want to gain financial freedom, then there's three different aspects to it. You have to find a way to make money to make good money, and that's one one aspect, right? Then you have to find a way to save a significant proportion of what it is that you make. That's another aspect. And then when you've saved that significant portion, the third aspect is you need to find a, where, a place to park that money that's going to be give you an above inflation return, is going to be safe, and it's going to give you a nice appreciation, right? But it's not a strategy to make money. So what I would say is the permanent portfolio, the way I view it, is... This is a place, once you have made money, to put it somewhere that is going to be safe, that's going to give you a, a decent appreciation, and is going to be able to tackle any weird circumstances that might come up in terms of manipulation of the, of the currency, of the money supply, or in terms of uh, recession and, and so forth. So that's the way I think about it. So for example, let's say that you wanted to, to think about doing property as a passive uh, income business, in a way, that's more on on, on the how are you going to make money, right? It would be yeah. generating value because you find a really dirt cheap property and you do it up and you manage to rent it out for a good price. And that sort of brings you the money. Then you can save some money. And the permanent portfolio is a place to store and and build up what it is that you, you save. And Harry Brown makes the point in, in his book, which is a really good one, is to always think about investment as the place to park your money and that your career, whatever it is you do for work, whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee or whatever, that's what's going to generate your wealth. Because often when people look to investment to generate their wealth for them, when they think of it as being like, you know, I'm, this is going to be a get-rich-quick scheme, that's when it is incredibly disappointing because <laughs> you know, you, you've got to be incredibly lucky uh, to, to, to actually generate wealth as an investor in that way. And so just in terms of that, that's sort of, I think, just to provide a bit of a um, that, background that makes as to sense, how yeah. to view it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not it's 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 kind of like an alternative to a savings account or I mean you still want to have money in savings, but it's a place to put your money for safekeeping and still let it appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, you know, if we lived in a world where there was a gold-backed currency and where there were no there was no fractional reserve banking and so and where, you know, the banking industry was private and also was regulated by private institutions that made sure that they had everything in the bank and everything, then you could just save money, right? And you maybe you'd want to split your money between different banks because then, you know, to, to, to be on the safe side. But, you know, the, I, in an ideal world, I would like to be able to say, hey, I want to give my money to a sound financial institution that's going to invest it in a diversified way and is going to give me a bit of return. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where we have fractional reserve banking, which means that if you put your money in the bank, it's not your money anymore. It belongs to them. And not only does it belong to them, but they don't even have it. Yeah. They have a tiny, tiny fraction of it. And they are technically, I mean, they're, they're bankrupt the whole time. It's just that nobody's <laughs> run, there's no run on the bank to actually prove it. So that's a problem. Then we have the problem that 
you know, you can't just, it's not your money that it's not like a gold coin, which is just something that you have. It's a denomination of fiat currency, which means somebody out there is printing more of it. And you have no clue how much yours is going to be worth next year. And so we got that problem. And then we got the sort of instability in the financial sector. So given all of that, you know, I would like to just be able to uh, put money in a bank and get on with my life. But actually, I invest because this is such an insecure world and such an insecure financial system that we have to take care of ourselves and we have to actually uh, hedge against all of the risks that this world has, both in terms of the economic risk and the political risk. And so the permanent portfolio is a very, in my opinion, and of course, everybody has to make their own choices. So you got to do your own research and and, uh, all of, uh, I'll say that all the disclaimers that there are to say, but in my opinion, Harry Brown came up with a very clever way of looking at the financial system and saying, what do we do given all that we know about how unpredictable markets are, how the government can interfere in the uh, currency and how difficult it is to, to actually uh, know what, an asset, what any individual asset is going to do next year and given what we understand about the uncertainty of markets and especially in under these conditions how can we find a way to hedge against different risks and still come have a good rate of return and so what he came up with was a way of taking your your savings and putting them into different asset classes so an asset class is like not just different shares but actually a different type of investment so as well as shares you also have bonds and you also have gold and you also have cash. And that was the idea was that if you do this, then whatever happens in the economy, one part of your portfolio will be rising when the other parts are falling. And it will rise faster than the other parts fall together because money will slosh between one of these asset classes and another in the economy. So it's a, it's a way of essentially diversifying yourself to protect yourself against different economic conditions. Yeah, that's that's great. It's it, especially with today. I mean, I think that's great uh, for people to look into. Uh, especially just, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with currency, um, especially with the euro, with Greece, and if Greece drops out of the eurozone, then a lot of other countries could potentially drop out. Yeah, the price of oil is is going down, so the dollar's getting stronger temporarily until the bubbles burst. And who knows what's going to happen? So it's 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 you know it, it's good to have. Um, to be diver- have your have your wealth diversified for sure. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, man. I kind of got to take. Oh, well, while, you're, while you're thinking about it, let me just add one more thing. And the, you see, the other part of the philosophy behind it is basically that investment advice is uh, bullshit. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> uh, that was essentially what Harry Brown. Uh, he was an investor himself, and he was an investment advisor. He had a newsletter and. He took because he was very much informed by the Austrian economics approach to understanding the economy. You know, he very much understood that we cannot predict human action and that we do not know exactly what's going to happen when we're talking about subjective individuals making choices on the market. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and anybody who tells you that they do uh, is essentially making it up. And so obviously it's possible to know certain industries and to have a little bit of insider knowledge and that can be extremely valuable. And there are professional traders who sometimes have some inside knowledge that some, sometimes helps them, but they get it wrong too. And the amazing thing is, is that, you know, in general, indexes, market indexes, for example, of the whole stock market, 
uh, funds that invest purely in in uh, in indexes tend to do better than funds that invest in specific companies because it's so hard to pick winners. And so Harry Brown took the approach that, you know, don't even try to beat the market. Just take a strategy where what we can do is protect ourselves against the risks that we do know about, such as currency manipulation and so forth. And the other thing we can do is to, to have real personal responsibility and look after ourselves and not entrust your money to an, an advisor who's going to go and do crazy stuff with it. And that's another Absolutely. reason why I really like that is because he, you know, it stops you getting mugged by Wall Street, basically. If you take just control of your investments. Sorry? Oh, no, keep going. Or I said even just a bank. I mean, banks. Uh, yeah. My, my friend recently, uh, he uh, his grandparents had set up a trust fund in a bank with like an investment banker. And they pretty much lost uh, all that money and a bunch of other people's money. And now he has to wait on a class action lawsuit that can take like five years to maybe get some of that money back. So it's just, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I just would not trust banks and sorry for diverting you. I mean, you were on a roll there and I just, uh, I just, no, no, but you're <laughs> absolutely right. Banks and financial advisors, because basically the point is that anybody in the financial market, they make money by, uh, getting you to trade and they make a commission on trades, buying and selling. Every time you buy and sell something, they're making money, but whether or not that stuff goes up or down, you're, you're, you, you're the one whose money's at risk and you're going to lose it. And trading is expensive because you have all of the costs of trade too. So the, the, the idea is to find a strategy where you don't do a lot of messing around trying to predict things. You just find a way to park your money so that it can accumulate over time. And many people have adopted the approach of just saying, you know what, I'm just going to put all my money in stocks and I'm just going to sit on it. And, you know, yeah, there'll be some recessions and it'll go down and so forth. But ultimately, the stock market will will keep growing. And so uh, that's my passive investment. It's become very, very popular to invest in passive uh, investing in stock market index funds. But the problem with that is it's not diversified outside the stock market. And so the permanent portfolio is really just one more advanced way of doing a passive investment strategy like that, which is as, instead of just having stocks and bonds, you also have gold and cash. And gold in particular is really important because it means that you're protected from situations of extreme inflation, which can really, really wipe you out. Um, and, you know, we've seen many of those in the last century. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, now, one thing, so we, we talked about how the permanent portfolio is really not designed. So it's not a way for you to gain the capital. It's just a place to put your capital now, one way, and you know, whenever I hear you interview guests, and it's, uh, and and again, please check out uh, the Voluntary Life podcast. It's a great podcast. Um, some of my favorite interviews with people are on your podcast, and it's, and it, and it's just regular people, just like us, and they're they're just trying to to gain financial freedom, and they all have different strategies. And Jake does a great job of kind of picking their brain and figuring out how they what their approach was. And one question you always ask. Is budgeting. Um, mm. Now, I read a book a long time ago, The Richest Man in Babylon, and that kind of set like a budget. I think it was, uh, you know, s save 10%, invest, I think, 20%, and then uh, live off of 70%. 
But I think in today's economy, I think you really have to be a lot more aggressive with what you try to live off of. And I think we've already talked about minimalism and we've already talked about getting, you know, something that I was saying on a, on a podcast recently was, you know, treat your life like a business in the sense that you, you, you know, you really want to get your expenses as down as much as possible. Um, and that's, that's kind of the whole concept of minimalism. But mm. so, so going from there, um, you know, so budgeting, I mean, I, you know, I've heard you talk about it on your podcast now, the way you budget, I mean, you go into great detail about it now for, so, so do you mind just kind of getting into budgeting and kind of the importance of budgeting and your strategy and, and what you think the average person, how they might want to budget their funds to get to where they actually want to be financially? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most important thing about it is to be conscious about what the hell's going on with your money. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know what it feels like to track my expenses purely on the basis of having a look at my bank balance. You know, oh, have I got money in there? Oh, that's good. There's some money in there. Oh, it's a bit low, you know. Yeah. That was essentially like, I know what that that feels like, right? And that is completely lacking in consciousness about what you're doing. Where's your money going? You know, where, what, what have you spent it on and so forth? And uh, so I've experienced doing that. And I've also experienced what I do now, which is that I track all my spending and every month I look at all the different categories of what I've spent money on. So food and, and housing and, and clothes and travel and you know any, any other categories that make sense to track it on, taxes and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm able to say you know, to myself, like, how, how has my spending changed over the last year? And how come I'm spending more on this and less on that? And was that worth it? You know, was it worth spending all that money on this category uh, and so forth? And I'm able to also look at where my income is coming from and see, you know, what is what is making money and so forth. And so I think before you decide anything about how much money you want to save, and it is a really good question uh, as to how much should you try and save of your income, the first step that is so liberating, even though it is a pain uh, to start and it's a, it's a bit of a hassle to get going with, and it can also be extremely stressful for some people to start being conscious about where money is going because money is such a, you know, it, it really does provoke fight or flight <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> fear or anger responses in people and, and uh because it's kind of about survival and so forth. So it can be stressful. But if you start tracking your spending, all your income and all your expenses, um, and categorizing it yourself, so you know if you went out and ate out that you can categorize that as, as dining out, and if you bought groceries, you can categorize that differently and so forth. When you do that, it gives you an amazing sense of, of consciousness about your financial life. And that's the... That's the information that you can use to start making wise decisions for yourself about what you want to do in terms of gaining more financial freedom and about what works for you and what, what is feasible for you in terms of where you might be able to save money and where it would make sense to spend less because you're not getting real value from the spending and so forth. So that's the most crucial thing about budgeting. It's not so so much like, you, you know, should I save X percent or Y percent, but just having an understanding of where your money is going, that puts you ahead of the vast majority of people who are managing their finances on the basis of looking at their, you know, when they go to an ATM, looking at what the number says. And that that's, uh, you know, and, and people who are, uh, are living month to month, you know, we, we live next to a shopping center uh, here in the UK and we know 
when it's the first weekend after payday because the <laughs> car park is full, right? Yeah. And, and that tells you how people are living. They're living month to month, right? Because uh, yeah. we get paid monthly in the UK. Oh, so, gotcha. you know, the, so that kind of shows sort of really what's going on at the level, at the level of spending. And that's not free. That is not free no. compared to being able to make your own choices about what you're going to spend money on because you know you've made a conscious decision. And if you've made a conscious decision, then, yes, yeah, spend it on whatever you like and whatever makes you happy. But that that's the basis. And then, you know, um, and then I, I, would, I do have some thoughts about how much to save, but I want to hand it over to you first and see, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. I, I know something I need to do again, and I think it's something like – you know, I'm not the best with my budgeting. Like I, you know, I'll make some lifestyle changes. You know, I heard, uh, you know, one thing that I started doing was I just started, you know, trying to incorporate my health and get better with health. Like I naturally started going to the grocery store, making my own food, having a better relationship with my food. And I saved a ton of money just going to the grocery store. Mm. But now it's like, you know, okay, so I've tried a bunch of different so a lot of things is like for me, like finding good meat and I've, and I don't mind spending money on good meat, but like if I can find some cheaper good meat, then I'll go there. And then also produce, if I can find good organic produce, I don't mind spending money on it, but if I can find the lowest costing organic produce. So I've like really now when I go to the grocery store, it's kind of like I'll go to five different grocery stores cause I know where I want to get. And thankfully petrol is low right now. The price of gas in the United States is super low. So and I have a very fuel efficient car, so it's not killing me. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, you know, getting starting a balance sheet, figuring out, OK, this is my money that's coming in. This is my money that's coming out, putting it into categories, just like what you were saying. I think that's that's what you have to do. And I think, um, you know, and, and I think that made a bunch of sense what you were just saying. So I think, uh, yeah, I think so going from there and then then going on to the savings plan, you're about to say how much yeah. money you could save. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone who I've talked to, and and, and uh, by the way, I really appreciate what you said about the interviews uh, on my podcast because <laughs> I learn a lot from those people too. You know, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing the interviews because I learn from people who who are approaching different ways to find freedom, and and I've really learned a lot about this stuff from people who've who've spent a lot more time focusing on it than me. So there, there's a kind of community out there of extreme savers, yeah, who, people who are going for free, financial freedom just through really hardcore saving and. I was never that hardcore. I mean, I think in some ways because I the, – the, the thing that has really helped me out in terms of saving has been that I've always lived uh, in pretty basic accommodation. As I said, I was in a studio apartment until I was 38 and a rental, right? So I didn't have a big mortgage or anything like that. So I didn't own a home until in my late 30s and I, I was in a very small apartment. And housing is the number one expense for a lot of people. Oh, right? yeah. And the second one is transport. And I've never owned a car. And that's partly because I've been able to live in places like London and Brighton where you just don't, you don't really need one. But yeah. how's, uh, transportation is another way that people save a lot of money. A lot of people get rid of their cars and they go for biking or they live on public transport routes and so forth. And so in some ways, you know, in terms of the ranking of things to focus on, housing is number one. Transport is number two, and food is is also important. That's number three. And the point that you made about not about uh, buying groceries as opposed to dining out. I mean, that's a big, big saver. You know, a lot Absolutely. of people uh, who are looking to save 
uh, do a lot more eating at home. And, and we've certainly made that change too, because, you know, that was one thing that I always felt like, ah, oh, you know, after a hard day at work, it's kind of nice to go out and have a meal and so forth. And, and it is, but actually, if you organize your life so that you can eat in, uh, it really uh, mounts up over the long term. And the other one that, that uh, is really key is tax. And that's a huge expense, especially if you're, you know, the more money you earn, because of progressive uh tax rates, the more tax you're going to start paying. And so it really pays to actually understand the tax system and understand what you can do to minimize your tax as much as possible. And where necessary, you know, get a good accountant and find a way to, to save money so that you can reduce that part of your uh, expenses because it's a huge expense. Yeah, I'm working on finding a good accountant. They take... Uh... <laughs> I'm in sales, so I've been in, you know, so obviously, you know, it's a great way to earn, you know, some capital because I, I try to live off my base salary or lower. I want to try to live lower than that, but that's, it's a little bit tougher, but like they take about 40% of my money here just in capital gains tax. I'm sure if you're in the UK or Canada, they'll take a lot more of your money. Um, mm. And, and it, it, you know, and, and that's an interesting thing. I think, um, you know, it, taxes are something that, uh, it's a tricky thing. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people have tried to have the argument, you don't have the right to take my money, but they'll put you in a cage. So I think it's, you got to learn how to, how to uh, navigate and really, you know, really effectively right, get write-offs uh, in a good way. And that's something that, you know, I, I definitely need to find an accountant personally. Like that's something I'm working on. Um, and uh, sorry, Jake, I just started yeah, thinking about my no, personal it, stuff. It, like on, I need to find that. On that point, what I would say is, it actually links back to what we were talking about before because if you track your spending, then, you know, any deduction that you can take, any legitimate deduction where, you know, if you have taken a customer out and bought coffees or whatever, you want all of that stuff going through and being making sure that you take it off your tax bill. And so actually having a good tracking of what you have spent money on is a good way to make sure that you don't miss out on the opportunities to to actually uh, minimize your taxes. And I mean, you know, long term, you know, you can you can look once you've actually made money, then you can look to move abroad and move to a low tax uh, 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 regime somewhere where you can actually, you know, get rid of tax altogether by living in a tax haven and so forth. But as you say, you know, you there's there's no freedom in uh, getting arrested for for <laughs> not paying tax. So you've got to know what you can deduct and what not. Not, I mean, I I hate taxes, but I pay them because I, I enjoy not being in prison. <laughs> yeah. But there, but I also I also look carefully at what uh, what I'm allowed to deduct and so forth. And and uh, and so yeah, I, as I said, finding a good accountant is a helpful thing. And the other thing is just if you track everything that you're spending, that really helps too. And the third thing is that I think it, unfortunately. With tax, there's this stupid thing that the government incentivizes certain behaviors. So in other words, there will be tax breaks for doing certain things. And it's really tricky because if you just follow the incentives, then you can end up investing in stupid ways that actually don't benefit you long term. So you have to kind of work out what to what to take advantage of in terms of tax breaks and what it's not worth taking advantage of. But I think at least being aware of what you can do is is really important. And, and a really simple one is, you know, if you do have a side business and you are able to 
like uh, lower your taxes because if you buy computing uh, computer products and whatever for your side business then you know you're able to actually remove them from your from your tax bill then that's all stuff that you know if you can do it it's great sometimes you need to be aware that some of the deductions that you might be able to make actually push against you doing good business so for example when people become entrepreneurs there's a temptation to to like push as much expense through your business as possible because it reduces your tax bill. But if you do that, you can also lose sight of the fact that you need to make a profit. You, know, you actually need to you need to run a lean ship and actually make money. So I think it's something that you have to be really conscious of and and really think carefully about. Does it make sense for me to try and take advantage of this? possible way of saving some tax or is it actually pushing my business off course and it's you know i'm not really going to benefit long term so i think there's there's definitely some thinking to do about it but just being conscious about tax is really helpful yeah the government's not going to really be ha- you're going to definitely be on the radar if every year you're losing money in your business but you've stayed in business all these years <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no that's that's definitely helpful um I was going to ask, uh, kind of to piggyback off that. So we we talked about taxes now uh, into savings. You know, for once you get all that stuff figured out, I mean, and it, it, aggressive savings, I, I think, is really a great idea. Um, you know, how what percentage do you think people should be shooting for to save? I know the one couple you interviewed, they were young too, and he was saving, mm-hmm. I think, more than fifty percent of his income, which yeah. was pretty incredible. Um, I, I mean, it's- I. Keep going, sorry. Yeah. Well, I think there's different approaches. So, like, for example, let, let's take my, my, my example. Personally, I wasn't a big saver. I mean, I, I channeled all my money into my business. So any money that I had, I was putting into my business in the early years to try and grow it. And so I wasn't putting aside personal savings. In fact, I did the opposite. I spent all my savings on my business, right, which was a risky move. But it paid off yeah. because I built the business. The business became profitable. There was value in the business, and I was then able to sell my business. And that was my route to financial freedom. So it wasn't a saving strategy; it was an investment strategy in a business that I poured my heart and soul into for ten years to grow. Right. So that's sort of my own experience of the the route that I come from. But now, the, the people I've interviewed who do the extreme saving route, they have a totally different approach, right? They go for stable jobs because one of the things, if you're going to be saving money, if you want to be saving, then it's kind of, it's hard to do that and be an entrepreneur because the, in entre- entrepreneurship, you know, obviously you're taking a lot more personal risk and your income is more variable and so forth. So the extreme savers, what I've noticed is they tend to be people who get well-paid jobs and they, you know, they have relatively stable employee careers. And then what they do is they go for absolutely massive saving. And as you say, more than 50%, some of them 75% of their income. And they do that by living extremely frugally. So they live in frugal accommodation. They just rent, you know, a small apartment in a, in a uh, cheap area. They rely on public transportation and they tend to dine in and so forth. And the idea is that given various assumptions, if you're able to save north of 50%, more like 75% of your income for 10 years, then you can retire on the on the income from your investments that you have saved during that period. So it's, it's a different strategy. And funnily enough, if you think about it, 
building my business was a 10 year project too, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, uh, if you really want to change your life and achieve financial freedom, this is not going to, it's not a get rich quick thing. It's not going to happen overnight. We're talking 10 years, right? Yeah. But then again, we're also talking about fundamentally changing your life and going to a point where you are free to do whatever you want to do. So this is not something for, you know, for people without patience and who aren't <laughs> willing to go through a slog because it is, right? But yeah. the exciting thing is if you do this, if you choose a route that works for you, you know, maybe you want to be an extreme saver and stay in a job and, and have more of a, you know, stable job type situation, but just keep sucking away that ink, that, that savings every, every month. Or maybe you want to be an entrepreneur and, and do more something similar to what I did. Whichever way you choose, if you're willing to, to really look at changing your life, you can do it. It's just hard and it's going to take you 10 years. But the exciting thing is there's all these people that I've interviewed on my podcast who've done it, right? It's totally doable. Um, and it's doable in today's economy and it's doable with today's tax rates and to, with today's level of government intervention in the economy. And as you were saying earlier on, Drew, I, I am always excited about focusing on stuff that I control and that I can make an impact on and that my listeners can control and that they can make an impact on. And this you can make an impact on. This is a way that you can actually get freedom in your life and if you're willing to go for it. So what I hope is that, you know, by, by providing some different examples of different routes, like the extreme saving or entrepreneurship, or there's also passive income and so forth, that people can find their own way that is going to work for them and it's going to be fulfilling and exciting and motivating for them. And they can actually change their lives and really achieve freedom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, sir, we are approaching an hour, and I uh, want to say thank you again for coming on the show, um, and we can wrap it up here. Uh, so everybody listening, please, please, please go to voluntarylife.com. Um, that's your, the voluntary the voluntary life. life. Yeah. I'm sorry, the voluntary life.com. Follow Jake on Twitter, which is at voluntary life. Um, no, it's at the voluntary. Oh, the voluntary man! I'm just yeah. butchering your your things. I'm I'm a, <laughs> no problem, I'm an awesome no host. <laughs> uh, but subscribe to his podcast on Twitter again, or on Twitter on uh, on iTunes. Wow, brain's working well today. Um, <laughs> all those links, all those links, you can find on thevoluntarylife.com anyway. So Absolutely. don't worry, they're all they're all there. Yeah, uh, please purchase Jake's book, um, which is becoming an entrepreneur. I have it. It's also if you uh, have Kindle Unlimited, you can get it on Kindle Unlimited. Um, but uh, and Jake, you're working on writing now. I did want to talk to you about your writing, and we we kind of got into everything else and how people can help themselves, and we didn't get to it. But uh, what book are you working on right now? Like what's coming out? Well, actually, this is exactly what I'm writing about. I'm I'm working on a book uh, called Four Ways to Quit the Rat Race, which I've done a presentation about it at Libertopia in in 2013. And uh, you can find the video for that on my website as well on the about page. And um, so I'm writing this up. And in fact, everything that we've talked about in terms of extreme saving and passive income and investment and so forth, really, these are all topics that I cover in the book. And, and so uh, I'm, I'm just finishing at the moment. And then what I'm going to do is offer to uh, listeners and subscribers from my podcast to get hold of a, a beta copy of the book and provide me some feedback. And, you know, I, I want to include, make sure that I, I get to incorporate feedback from listeners and, and, and understand things that I can do to, to really make this the best, best book that it can be. So if you're interested, you know, then check out my podcast and 
uh, sign up to my mailing list because I will give you a, a, a copy of the uh, of the book to read before it comes out for free. Yeah, I think I thought I was on your mailing list, but I haven't got any mail, so I better double check to make sure I want a copy <laughs> of your book to read. Uh, one thing also we didn't get to get into, which maybe we'll have to do next time, is uh, how people could probably leverage you know things like Airbnb and Uber to pay for their housing and, and travel um, in a sense of you know I, one idea that I had for people and uh, is you know, you can use Airbnb to pay your rent bill or your, your housing bill. And then you could also use your, to pay for your car payment. If you have one is use Uber or be Lyft or something like that. So that was just something, you know, I don't know why I just threw this in here now, Jake, I just wanted to. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because actually, you know, when we live in Mexico, we rent out the apartment here in the UK and because Mexico is so much cheaper than the UK, it more than covers all of our accommodation and it, we actually end up making having, having some surplus as well to, to support us out in Mexico. So yeah, if you're willing to, you know, if you do have an apartment and you rent it out on Airbnb or something, then uh, if you go and live somewhere somewhere cheaper, uh, which also may be potentially somewhere warmer and nicer, then you can totally help fund your trip with it. It's just something that we did. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jake, for coming on the show. Everybody, please support Jake and uh, like and review uh, his uh, podcast on iTunes. Um, iTunes, just for anybody that doesn't know, it doesn't actually track downloads. It tracks reviews and likes and ratings. So please do that. Go to his website, sign up for his newsletter. Jake, thank you so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. It was, it was great fun. All right. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Good morning. How are you this morning? Say, say, haven't I seen you someplace in this building before? Or, or? No.